0: Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Talwood, and I'm Matt Anderson. Following last episode's look at the life of Robert E. Howard, this time we're going to be exploring
1: his work. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on?
2: Well, it's coming up to that time of the year again. The next tome, issue eight, is on the way with our usual wrap-up of year-end stuff that you've seen from previous tomes, things like our Ludomancer's articles about other games that we've tried in the year, usually the first time we've played a new game and so on, our episodes of Insanity, some of our favourite recordings over the course of the last year, and some film reviews, Maybe
1: potentially yeah i haven't decided yet whether i'm going to put any film reviews in this issue just because we've had a number of submissions from listeners and it's a question of what there's going to be room for we'll play it by ear
2: i also hear paul's been going to something called a convention which i vaguely remember these these things being a, a thing of the past
0: yes i've strayed outside my door there is stuff still out there it's not a wasteland in fact i went all the way to Leamington Spa to the Owlbear and Wizard Staff Convention. A curious name. And Lucy commented that surely that can't be a convention. It doesn't have the word con in the name. (laughs) Do you know why it's called Owlbear and Wizard Staff? It sounds very euphemistic. No. I believe it is the flag of Warwickshire, which has a staff and a bear on it.
2: Where's the owl?
0: No, it's the owlbear and a wizard staff, you see, rather than just bear and staff.
1: Uh Uh-huh. I'd never... Piece that together, there was a pub I used to go to in the west end of London years back, like back in the 80s, called the Baron Staff on Charing Cross Road, and I'd never realised the connection there with the name. It was further confused because the people I went with just for some reason called it the Hairy Giraffe. <laughs> hmm.
2: I remember having to drive up to uh, or through Warwickshire on um, work business occasionally to go and do some audits. And I remember going past the sign that says, like, Welcome to Warwickshire, uh, Shakespeare's County. And it has the bear holding the staff, or at least the outline of it, on the sign.
0: That's it. Yeah, so I got to play um, Barbarians of Lemuria, which I may well mention in the episode at some point, because uh, obviously it relates to uh, Conan and so on to some degree. And also to, to uh, run some Cthulhu, I ran Full Fathom 5, and had a chance to sit around in the bar chatting to uh, such luminaries as Dirk the Dice and Blithy from the Grognard Files and Gaz from What Would the Smart Party Do? So it was great to catch up with those guys. Marvellous.
2: Whereas I hear Scott, instead of venturing outside, is taking part in a much more indoor activity over the course of October.
1: (laughs) I've done nothing for the last couple of years but partake in indoor activities. But yes, this is a return to an annual indoor activity. So, as I mentioned at the last episode, I am doing the October Horror Movie Challenge again this year. We're recording this in advance, but at the time this episode goes out, we should be well and truly stuck into it. So the idea of this is I am watching a horror film every day that I've not seen before and writing a full review of it and posting it on BlasphemousTomes.com. So if you are interested in horror films, then please do join in. We'll be having discussions about this on our Discord server and on social media. And I'd love to hear about the films you're watching. And now on to our main topic Robert E. Howard. So, in our last episode, we spent a bit of time talking about who Robert E. Howard was and the kinds of things that inspired his writing. This time, we're moving on to the writing itself, offering a sort of overview of what it was that he he created. By necessity, however, this is going to be a very incomplete, highly idiosyncratic discussion. As we've established, Howard despite the fact that he only had really 12 years of a publishing career, was incredibly prolific during that time. Examining any aspect of his work in any kind of detail would require an entire podcast series of its own. Once again, we've drawn upon Blood and Thunder, The Life and Art of Robert E. Howard by Mark Finn, A Means to Freedom, The Letters of H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, edited by S.T. Joshi, and Nameless Cults, The Cthulhu Mythos Fiction of Robert E. Howard, edited by Robert M. Price.
0: Let's take a look at what did Robert E. Howard write. Well, the obvious thing, Conan. <laughs> but he wrote other things too,
1: right? He did. There is a little quote from him that Mark Finn reproduced in uh, Blood and Thunder, which comes from a letter that Howard wrote to Lovecraft in October of 1933, which I think sums up a lot of what Howard did. There is no literary work, to me, as zestful as rewriting history in the guise of fiction. And I think that is really the core of what he did in the vast majority of his work. Not all of it, but the vast majority. I get the feeling he kind of moved
0: away from that to some degree. When you start, as we find with writing Call of Cthulhu scenarios, if we base them in an actual historical event, there's a lot of research to be done there. And I think he found that with his stories. This is what my reading has shown. And I think he found moving away from that somewhat liberating. So moving away from where he was writing about Solomon Cain,
1: when was that based? Yeah, that was Elizabethan or Jacobean, anyway, the Puritan Age.
0: But there's research and stuff to get right in that. So he moved away from that and went to, to Conan and the Hyborian Age and these fictional things, albeit based on other legends and so on, perhaps, to some degree, he was sort of taking inspiration from some of those at least ways in in the use of names like Atlantis and so on. I think that was liberating for him. He didn't have to spend so much time on, on research and so on.
1: Yeah, but he didn't stop either. I think as we go over the overview of what he did at different stages of his career, we'll see that there were very much ebbs and flows and a lot of the stuff that he did was historical or at least very thoroughly researched right up to the end. Hmm.
2: As well as the pulp stories that we've talked about, Howard also wrote extensively for local newspapers and amateur publications. He also wrote over 800 poems, many of them published in his lifetime. He boasted that each was written in about under 30 minutes. That's almost like the Jamie Oliver dish. Uh, (laughs) Hey, I can knock it out in 15 minutes. I'll I'll knock (laughs) out a poem in under 30. He
0: did like his poetry and had quite a bit of discussion with Lovecraft about metre and verse and so on. Because I think he was perhaps more of an intuitive worker and Lovecraft would sort of give him some guidance on the technical side of meter and so on, some of which he wasn't so
1: aware of. But at the same time, I think he was a much better poet than Lovecraft. And Lovecraft, I think, at best was a middling poet.
0: But having a technical knowledge of it oh, doesn't yeah. make you a good poet, does it, necessarily? Exactly. I'm not,
1: yeah.
0: not saying he wasn't, but
1: yeah. I think Howard was the more inspired poet. And yeah, as you say, Lovecraft was the, the more learned one. But a lot of Lovecraft's poetry is just dull. I'm having flashbacks to
2: Star Trek The Next Generation with Data trying his uh, poetry about his cat.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yes, in fact, Howard's first professional publication was a poem called The Sea in a local newspaper in 1923. And this was followed up a little while later by his first published short story called Spear and Fang in the July 1925 issue of Weird Tales. I think it's
0: interesting this thing about the fact that he wrote poetry and because as we've said I don't feel qualified to talk about all his works because there's so much Mm. of it but I certainly feel like he excels in shorter form
1: that's interesting I I disagree wholeheartedly I much prefer his longer works
0: yeah because you liked red nails and I found that a bit anyway maybe we should come to that a bit later his first real success came from his obsession with boxing, which spawned 31 stories, most centred on sailor Steve Costigan, a comical character who won in the ring, but lost in love. Aww. <laughs> These were his main bread and butter for a while. Yeah, I mean, as we said in the previous episode, I think boxing was a much, much bigger then than it is now. Still a big deal now, but then it was like, a, you know, a very uh, prominent sport.
1: And there were a lot of magazines, or at least a number of magazines, that were devoted to boxing. That unusually, and obviously, this is where Howard comes in, published fiction alongside the factual articles about fights and profiles of boxers and stuff like that. Mm. I guess that's a sort of combination you don't really see in the modern day. But these, um, like, sport adventure magazines.
2: Mm. Very
1: strange. Anyway,
2: in 1928, Howard wrote Post Oaks and Sand Ruffs, an autobiographical novel. It seemed as much therapy as a novel, offering the opportunity to vent in fictional form.
1: Yeah, the protagonist, of this, if I remember correctly, also called Steve Costigan, or at least Costigan. Uh, Costigan was a name that he just used for characters over and over again in his stories was very much an author insert and he fictionalized a lot of the events of his life and the people around him and stuff like that and it just really seemed to give voice to all the things that he couldn't say to the people around him in real life. I mean I suppose this is true with
0: most authors probably that they they write aspects of Mm -hmm. themselves into their characters we certainly see that with Lovecraft and we definitely see it with Howard.
1: Yeah, I think in Howard's case, well, actually, probably in both of their cases, their author-insert characters are like idealized versions of what they see as the best aspects of themselves. I Mm. think perhaps Howard was a bit more introspective in that respect than Lovecraft, and his characters, certainly as as they go on, are a bit more nuanced than quite often the ciphers that Lovecraft puts in his protagonists. Then, in 1929, Howard sold the Shadow Kingdom to Weird Tales. This King Cull story is credited as the origins of Sword and Sorcery, the first Sword and Sorcery tale published, ushering in a brand new genre. That said, he had published his first Solomon Kane story with Weird Tales a year earlier, and Personally, I sort of consider that to be borderline sword and sorcery. I know it's historical fiction, but in terms of the tropes and the mixing of the fantastical and horror and the approach of steel against sorcery and so on, a lot of those tropes are there in Solomon Cain. So I'd say it's a, a very debatable distinction. But Howard's main sword and sorcery creations were, obviously, Conan,
0: alongside King Cull of Atlantis, Puritan Solomon Kane, as you just said, Scott, and the Pictish king Bran macmorn All of these set the template for the sword and sorcery genre, depicting stoic heroes facing eldritch horrors and triumphing through wits and sharp steel.
1: And I think the wits part is important there as well. I've banged on about this with Conan before, but I think it applies to all of Howard's characters. that Except for the ones who are comically... I was about to say stupid, but not stupid, just inept, his characters do on the whole tend to triumph through cleverness Hmm. more than brute force, which is something that I don't think has trickled through to a lot of the rest of the sword and sorcery genre, at least not the more popular aspects of it. Tend to like big swords and chopping people up.
2: Hey, These stories come from a time when there wasn't much demarcation between genres, As with many short stories from Weird Tales, they mix elements of what we would consider fantasy, horror, even science fiction, as we see next episode when we discuss The Tower of the Elephant.
1: So this whole idea of Weird Fiction being this weird conglomeration of genres, this wasn't just Weird Tales, but Weird Tales typified it, but it was the pulps at the time. They didn't have this distinction between genres that we tend to see now. It was the same people writing across horror, science fiction, fantasy, and mixing all the elements together. You see this with Robert E. Howard. You see it particularly with Clark Ash and Smith that tried to pin down with a lot of his stories, say the Zothique stories. Are those fantasy? Are those science fiction? Are those horror? The answer is yes. (laughs) Do we ever find that with our own work? When we're writing stuff, do we kind of think about the genre or do we just mix and match elements as we see fit?
2: for me probably towards the latter it's more like I'll come up with an idea for a story and I don't necessarily want to pigeonhole it to say oh this is going to be a horror story this is going to be a sci-fi story I just let the thing develop as it develops but I generally tend to tinge towards horror with most things anyway I don't do uh, fluffy happy unicorns or elves walking around and very fantastical things like that I tend to tend to put things on a dark slant just because that's how I like my fiction
0: that seems to be the flavour of most of the weird tales that I'm aware of, though they have that sort of dark side to them, that sort of mm. horror elements and so on, whether it's sword and sorcery or it's gothic horror or whatever it is, it's still got that sort of macabre
1: edge to it. Yeah, yeah, it is this conglomeration of genres. I was going to challenge you there a bit, Matt, on you saying you didn't like the fluffier end of stuff. I'd say the Lord Dunsany, is definitely the softer edge of that. I mean, there are darker elements to his work, but I'd I definitely put him more in the fluffy end of the camp than the macabre end.
2: Well, certain things, yeah. I mean, probably the majority of his work, but I think the bits of his work that I enjoy the most, like Gods of Pagana and Dreamer's Tales and Beyond the Fields we know, they're more stories that I think have a kind of almost a dark or sad tinge to them, particularly some of the later Dreamer tales where it's with the Dreamer trying to get back to the land of Dream and finding that the things that he knew there have changed so much that time's moved on. And it does have this kind of very sad, melancholy take to it. But yeah, I admit there are other other of his works that he was probably more well-known for, like King Elfland's Daughter and so on, where they would be at the fluffy end of the scale. But they're not the things in his work that particularly appeal to me. I say I, I like more of his faux mythological texts that he put together, like Gods of Pagana and so on. They're, they're the stuff in his work I'm more drawn to.
0: Mm. And that sort of stuff is the sort of content we're talking about that appears in Weird Tales a lot of that is what appeals to role players as well, isn't it?
1: That same sort of range of story elements? It's certainly all the stuff that was drawn upon for the roots of role playing. As we've discussed many times before, obviously RPGs come out of Dungeons and Dragons in the first place, and these pulpy fantasy stories with elements of science fiction and horror in there were very much the things that inspired those early D&D games. I mean, whether or not you want to debate how much the content of D&D reflects those, it was still very much the inspiration. I don't think D&D would exist in its form if the people playing it hadn't read these stories.
0: I'm just thinking, like, the fans... You you were sort of saying what a diversity of uh, genres there were in Weird Tales... I'm just thinking, like a fan of weird tales is probably going to enjoy most of the stories in the magazine, mm. and just as we enjoy all sorts of things from modern day horror role playing games to sort of dark fantasy role playing games to science fiction things, but it tends to be kind of more of your, I don't know, your alien range of uh, like Alien the movie range of sort of uh, science fiction that we would probably go for. So it's always got that kind of. Horror tinge to it.
1: Hmm. Uh,
0: Not always, but but often.
1: I'd say that's debatable. Rather than getting stuck into that, I the reason I brought this up was that I mean, it strikes me that these days genre is a much more heavily demarcated thing. Mm. Yeah. All right. You do have things like Alien, like you mentioned there, which perhaps blend science fiction and horror, but I think because of trends in filmmaking, and particularly publishing, that genre has become much more of a signifier for marketing. And as a result, there aren't as many writers, perhaps now, who change lanes or mix elements from different genres. It does happen, but just not as ubiquitously as it did back in the 20s and 30s, where it seemed like everyone was doing that.
0: Well, like you say, that if that's the case, that's probably down to marketing, I guess. Oh, it, it absolutely is. Where do we put them on the shelf? Yeah. Yeah. In
2: 1930, Farnsworth Wright, editor of Weird Tales, invited Howard to write for a new pulp magazine called Oriental Stories. He certainly wouldn't get a title like that through anymore now. Later renamed Magic Carpet. I had a magic carpet in an RPG game i played in recently. I miss that carpet. <laughs> it focused on historical fiction. Howard obliged with several stories set in the Crusades. These, tonally, set the template for Conan.
1: One of these historical tales, Shadow of the Vulture, featured a character called Red Sonia of Rogatino, or Rotitino, I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced. This was a name that Roy Thomas, the writer, the Savage Sword of Conan comics, later on in the 1970s, seized upon, with a slightly different spelling, changing the Y to a J, and created his own character, Red Sonia, who has ever since been really closely associated with Conan, even though technically she wasn't a Howard creation. So much so that there was a Red Sonia film in the 1980s starring Bridget Neils which was a spin-off from the Conan series in which Arnie actually turned up playing Conan.
2: Oh, I knew Arnie was in the film. I didn't realise Arnie played Conan in the film.
1: I'm saying that. I mean, it's like 35 years since I saw the film and I hated it. I could be misremembering. Maybe he's playing a Conan analogue. That may be closer.
2: Ah. I think he fills the role, but I don't think it's the character by
1: name. But certainly in the comics... It was very much, uh, she was there as uh, not a companion to, but a, almost like a foil to Conan.
2: Yeah, the, the film credits actually has him listed as Calidor rather than Conan.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that was a licensing thing, and in the comics <laughs> it came from, that definitely would have been Conan. Calidor the Barbarian? I think he, think he dresses fairly similar, maybe, yeah, from <laughs> yeah. And acts about as well.
0: Early in their friendship, Howard asked Lovecraft's permission to write mythos tales. This led to the creation of Nameless Cults and the mad poet Justin Jeffrey. Yeah, so interesting stuff here. So, you know, we have that whole Lovecraft circle of people writing elements of things that Lovecraft had featured in his stories and him taking some of their elements and that whole blending thing. So Howard joins this group. So... You've been reading Nameless Cults, right, Matt? The collection of fiction. Yeah. So, what can
2: you tell us about these? I think pretty much as we've mentioned previously about the fact there's a kind of a difference between Howard writing long pieces and short pieces. A lot of the Mythos stuff that I've read of it is is very short. I mean, it's almost mm. blink and you miss it kind of style short, where they're very much almost just an individual scene. There's no real massive plot to any of them. Even so, they're still quite evocative. There's a good few name drops between Lovecraft creations and Howard's own stuff. Admittedly, I'm going to hold my hand up and say I did read and listen to a load of these in quick succession, so I can't remember whether this anecdote comes from either Dig Me No Grave or The Thing on the Roof. But the main character, almost like the narrator-type character, is berated by the obvious... Yoldy NPC steeped in mythos knowledge that basically berates the Howard standing as being, oh, you should, I, I could have read the Necronomicon. Like you don't, you know nothing about the Black Cities of Relay. You know nothing about Cthulhu. And you think, hang on a minute, that's not pronounced right? But no, he, mm-hmm. he did indeed shove an, an S on the end of it. Yeah. But yeah, there's plenty of name drops that get thrown in there. Nameless Cults itself was probably a collaborative endeavor because it went round a few different people to actually get to the end result, including the rather appalling German translation of the title.
1: <laughs> Wasn't that Derlith who came up with the, the German title?
2: Yeah, he, he sent the thing out to a few people. I think Derleth came up with the original, or not the original, the idea to have a foreign language title. And then it bounced around a few different people. There was other people involved, like E. Hoffman Price, was involved as well potentially in submitting the option of and this is where my own german pronunciation is probably going to be appalling Mm. here Nunnenbaren kulten which i think is technically a bit closer to nameless cults rather than having unasprachlichen kulten was the version that appeared in print more so and yeah it's uh, not great a translation (laughs)
1: Yeah, I can't remember exactly what's wrong with it, but I know Frank Delventhal, one of our listeners in Germany, has commented a number of times that it's just, it's close, but it's wrong enough that it really jars.
2: But yeah, it was just an interesting discovery to find that there was such collaboration, even just on the title of the book. Mm. And then you've got the fictional author, the mad poet, Justin Jeffrey, who you can, in some, maybe a uh, a darker glass you could potentially see him as a stand-in for Howard, in particular with some of the quotes made in the likes of The uh, the Black Stone that almost foreshadows Howard's own eventual demise.
1: This may not be a popular opinion, but I don't generally like Howard's mythos fiction very much. It's a long time since I read all of it. I, I reread a number of stories recently, and... The black stone I found dull. There were some nice bits of writing in it, but there wasn't really much to it. And the thing on the roof is a fairly fun romp, but it's quite slight. I think on the whole, this was not his strength. I I can see why he didn't write that many of them. I mean, he wrote a number of horror stories that weren't part of the mythos, and some of those I'd say are better, we'll come to one later on, but Pigeons from Hell, which we mentioned in passing in the last episode, I'd say is probably my favourite of his horror stories. It certainly has its problems. I think there are parts of it that are perhaps a bit uncomfortable to modern readers in, in some of the racial connotations in there even though it is fundamentally a story about slaves or former slaves taking revenge upon plantation masters it's presented in at best a ham-fisted way mm-hmm. but as far as atmosphere goes and as far as the depiction of horror and horrific elements he hit gold with that one it's really quite a creepy story particularly the first half Lesser when it all pays off so he obviously could write horror. I just don't think when it came to the mythos stuff, he did that good job of it.
2: Now, as I said, they are quite short and sharp. I think the main thing that makes them mythos is by association of those name drops that he throws in there. But then thinking of, particularly when you mentioned Pigeons from Hell, while it's not listed in in many collections that I've seen of as a mythos piece. It's very much part of his, like, Southern States uh, horror. Mm-hmm. It's all set around the same kind of area. There was one thing I found in there, though, that has been lifted into the Cthulhu mythos. And that's the Chosen of Yig, because there's the uh, the snakes, the Blessed Snakes of Yig that are described in the various Call of Cthulhu books that have come since as being snakes with the shape of a crescent moon on their head. Yeah. And they appear in Pigeons from Hell.
1: Yeah. Hmm. And also, one of the characters in there is, I think, very much Howard's tribute to HPL, this uh, New England gentleman who's come down to the south and is out of his element. The pigeons are not what they seem.
2: <laughs> I quite enjoyed some of the shorter mythos stuff. I thought Dig Me No Grave was quite a fun one, again, but with just mainly pepperings of references. But it seemed like it could otherwise, if you take those out, be quite a nice like, generic horror story anyway.
0: Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, black haired, sullen eyed, sword in hand, a thief, a reaver, a slayer, with gigantic melancholies and gigantic mirth, to tread the jeweled thrones of
1: the earth under his sandaled feet. That is literally our introduction to the character of Conan in the first published Conan story. Ah. I think that sets things up beautifully. I. Just love that as a character introduction, as a little summation of who that character is. You know from the outset that this is not a traditional hero, that this is an anti-hero, certainly a protagonist, but not necessarily a good guy.
2: I just love that phrase, gigantic melancholies. I want to be described like that one day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, get working on the size of your melancholies, Matt. (laughs) i don't know how you do that but
1: the secret Paul, is you don't skip melancholy day
0: every day is a melancholy day
2: (laughs) i call them weekdays they end in y Yeah.
1: yeah so in the early 1930s robert e howard started working on a new character conan the cimmerian inspired by all of these larger than life characters that he had met in texas farnsworth wright dubbed the character conan the barbarian a moniker that stuck. The Hyborian
0: Age of Conan was conceived as a long lost period of history, some 12,000 years ago. This gave Howard the chance to play with historical tropes without having to adhere to actual history. Lazy get out clause.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that lazy because he did actually write his own history of the Hyborian Age, this 10,000 word essay that spells out a lot of the pieces that he would then bring into the stories. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that he didn't then use in the stories, but I think it helped him crystallize in his mind what the setting was. And this, I think, goes against some of the ideas of sword and sorcery as being this setting where people just make stuff up as they need it. Here, he did actually plan a fair bit of it in advance. But from what I've read, this may have been at the instigation of Farnsworth Wright. I'm really not sure.
2: Well, it seems almost, not counterproductive, but definitely an- antithetical, to have a setting Bible for a guy who deliberately started writing stories that didn't require <laughs> such material. <laughs>
1: well. I don't think that he did this because he wanted to get away from history. I think it was because he wanted to create his own history. Mm
2: -hmm. But he didn't have to research it. He could create it.
1: (laughs) But I'd argue that he did so much general reading about history anyway, just for his own intellectual edification, that I don't think research was necessarily a great burden to him.
2: The first Conan story was a reworking of a King Cole novella. By this axe I rule! exclamation mark, Renamed The Phoenix on the Sword. Hmm. I think I prefer the first title. But <laughs> it was an instant hit anyway.
1: Howard actually only wrote Conan for a fairly small part of his career. He wrote all the Conan stories over the course of about three years. By the time nineteen thirty-five rolled around, he told Clark Ashton Smith in a letter that he was finished with the character; that he'd done everything that he wanted to with Conan. Though this may have been at least partly precipitated by financial problems at Weird Tales, they'd fallen behind on payments to Howard. And they owed him, I think at this stage, it was about $800. And by the time he died and his father was chasing Farnsworth Wright for for all these outstanding payments, it was well over $1,000. Yeah,
0: that's going to be quite a sum at the time. In his last years, Howard wrote adventure stories about Francis X. Gordon, known as El Borac the Swift, for Top Notch magazine. How good was that magazine? in quality. Who knows? <laughs> Gordon was a Texan gunslinger turned soldier of fortune in Afghanistan. Howard saw parallels with the Texas oil boom in the history of the area, and the stories are pretty anti-imperialist.
2: Hmm. Howard mainly wrote Westerns at this time, including serious comedy and horror pieces. Comedy Westerns, there's a combination.
0: Blades and Saddles.
2: Yeah, I was thinking as a Cactus Jack sleigh, or a, I think another title in the US, the villain, but not a genre I've seen personally, not one I've seen mixed too well before. But hey ho, his vampire story, "The Horror from the Mound," was the first weird western, initiating another subgenre. He's quite good at doing that, <laughs> as we mentioned in the last year's episode on the Weird West. That's episodes one nine two and one nine
1: three. I read this story for the first time a couple of weeks back. And it's quite a pacey, dark little story. It's fairly simple, someone discovering this forgotten tomb that has got a vampire buried in it, and there's a Mexican man living on the land who tries to warn him not to monkey around with it, and obviously tragedy ensues. But it was this mixing of the supernatural elements in the Western that hadn't really been done before in that way, it's certainly, I'd say, a lot more straightforward than a lot of the weird Western stuff that's come after that. I mean, it's for a start, I don't think it's that weird, but it is notable as the beginning of, uh, of that genre.
0: I mean, we're talking about the different genres he wrote in. I think at the bottom of it, he was just looking to make money a lot of the time. I think he would turn his hand to whatever he thought would sell or whatever people asked him to write. He says, uh, one quote, I am a simple working man who took up writing because it offers an escape from back-breaking drudgery. So, uh, you know, he'd rather sit at his desk and uh, write stories, whatever they might be, to earn a dollar than than something else.
2: I wholeheartedly empathise with the man.
1: (laughs) I agree with that, but at the same time, I don't think he would have had the... The patience or the enthusiasm to develop his craft and to do the reading necessary to pick up all the details to incorporate into his work. If he didn't have a passion for it at the same time, I don't think he arbitrarily thought, Oh, writing, that's going to be easy. He turned it into a career because he was good at it and because he was driven to do it. But I don't hmm. think it was a purely cynical, cold calculating choice.
0: No, but I think he rails against the idea that it's some kind of form of high art.
1: Mm. Oh, yeah.
0: Or that he was, you know, in contrast to Lovecraft, I think we might have talked about this last time, but Mm. in contrast to Lovecraft, who is very fussy, I don't know if if that's the right word, about his his work and about getting it right and about getting the true version of it and distilling it and, you know, I get the impression would spend hours and hours like revising things, whereas I get the impression... Howard would bang it out and there you go, wham, bam, thank you, man. And and it would be great, but I don't know how much time you put into
1: revisions and so on. A lot, apparently, yeah. Uh, This is something that comes up in the Finn biography. Does it? Right. I mean, it depended very much on how well the story had gone in the first place, but he would quite often rewrite stories entirely two, three times, maybe more. Sometimes that was a commercial decision. If he'd had a story that had failed or that had come back from an editor, he'd rewrite it according to what he thought would make it palatable for that or another market. Sometimes he would rewrite a story to change it as he did with the, um, the Cole story to make it for a different character and to cannibalize the elements of it and turn it into something new. But even then, he would still, even with the stories that he was selling directly to weird tales, he would go through multiple drafts. So you know, I don't think he was cavalier about it at all. Hmm. So most of the Westerns that Howard wrote had contemporary settings Especially the misadventures of Breckenridge Elkins, who was a hapless bear-like young man with a demanding family who always wanted him to do something remarkable or something strange. This gave Howard the excuse to write the kinds of tall tales that he'd grown up hearing from the, the frontiersmen around him, and these are told primarily for comic effect he took a number of the stories and stitched them together into a novel, which was titled A Gent from Bear Creek. This ended up being his first publication in book form. Sadly, however, as with Lovecraft, he didn't live to see that book published. Yeah, Because Lovecraft, I think, shortly before his death, had managed to sell The Shadow of Rinsmouth as a small book. And again, I think he died just before it was published. So both Mm -hmm. of them had that experience of not living to see their their stuff actually appear in books.
0: Mm -hmm. Now let's take a look at Robert E. Howard's legacy. So in 1946, Arkham House published a sampler of Howard's work entitled Skullface and Others. The first Conan book, Conan the Conqueror, followed in 1950, published by Gnome Press.
1: The Gnomes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a twee little name for <laughs> the publishing company that would make Conan famous, or at least start out making Conan famous. Did Conan ever meet any gnomes? Don't know, but I can't imagine the gnomes would have come off very well. No. I could picture Arnie
2: going through someone's front garden and accidentally crushing a few garden (laughs) ornaments with his big old feet. (laughs) Gnome Press hired L. Sprague de Camp to edit the remaining Conan stories. Uh Uh-oh, I remember this bit. (laughs) He opted to rewrite and expand them, making them his own. This included completing a number of story fragments, much as Derleth had done with Lovecraft. Yeah, and I, I hear there's definitely some uh, groans and cries at this moment mentioning these revisions because i understand they were quite divisive
0: i mean i guess we've got to bear in mind that these were i mean fans of the original authors and howard and lovecraft are both pretty exceptional writers i think and it's not easy to find somebody to pick up their legacy and actually finish off these stories these uh, unfinished fragments
1: I'd say that's a big difference between Durlith and De Camp here, though, in that Durlith was a fan. He was a fan of all the weird tales, writers, particularly of Lovecraft, and he created Arkham House out of phantom. L. Sprague de Camp had been hired by Nome Press as an editor to do this. And as we'll see as this section goes on, he was actually pretty dismissive of Howard. He didn't think Howard was a very good writer. He was willing to make money out of him, but he was actually pretty unpleasant towards Howard as a creator. Oh, okay. His approach was far more of a cynical commercial one than the fanboy enthusiasm of Derlith. Hmm. Makes sense. When Gnome Press hit financial difficulties in the late 60s, DeCamp took over the copyright for Conan and then teamed up with Lynn Carter to expand the line. These new paperbacks published by Lancer had covers by Frank Fazetta and they sold millions. This is the point at which Conan goes from being a cult character remembered from the pulps, surviving in some book form to becoming a pop culture phenomenon.
0: I mean, I would put that down more to Frazetta than to uh, to Campbell Carter. Yeah. Looking at Frazetta's covers, they must have shifted a lot of units. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I don't think anybody equals Frazetta for, for fantasy
1: artwork, personally. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong there. Certainly, I don't think it would have been anywhere near as popular without those. But at the same no. time, for... All I dislike what DeCamp and Carter did uh, with Conan, with Robert E. Howard's work, they certainly did more than anyone else to popularise them as well. As we'll see in a moment, they obviously had a vested interest because this made them lots of money. But at the same time, I don't think we'd be having this conversation about Robert E. Howard and Conan at the moment if it weren't for them. While De Camp made his money from Conan... He was often derisive of Howard,
0: calling his work hasty and juvenile. His biographical insights about Howard mainly came from E. Hoffman Price, who had met Howard once and became the source of many
1: inaccurate myths about the man de campy even ended up writing a biography of howard which had a lot of cod freudian insights into his character i think for a long time while people were still making money out of Coden and spinning off comics and films as we'll come to in a moment it was trendy for a long time to sort of shit on howard as a writer hmm. My first exposure to Conan was reading these DeCamp and Carter uh, paperbacks. I certainly enjoyed them as a, as a teenager, but it was a revelation years later when Del Rey started putting out the original Conan stories and how much fucking better they were.
2: In the 1970s, Marvel Comics produced The Mighty Sword of Conan from Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith. Well, I think that should be The Savage Sword of Conan. Like De Camp, they expanded greatly on Howard's work. While many of the comics were based on Howard's stories, their more brutish depiction of Conan set the template for the films to come.
1: I do actually like these comics. I've got a number of the big collections of them. They were published in uh, telefilm book-sized collections by Marvel some time back. The original comics were in black and white, uh, which I think works really well. There have been colourised versions put out since. They were quite groundbreaking. Apart from anything else, Marvel, at this stage, I think particularly for these publications, skirted around the comics code so they could bring in a lot of the darker elements of the stories, which would be banned otherwise, by publishing them as magazines rather than comics. I guess they really kind of broke the mould in comics for the time and laid a lot of the groundwork for the more mature comics that would come sometime after.
0: Yeah, and I think brought a lot of people into it, Conan. I know mm. Andy, who um, does our Christmas card illustrations, was a big fan of the comics, I guess, back in the 70s. And that, when I talked to him about Conan, that's kind of what his reference point often is.
1: Then in 1977, Carl Edward Wagner, who we have discussed in the podcast before, tried to get the rights to print the original versions of the Conan stories, the original Howard texts, and was blocked largely by L. Sprague de Camp. De Camp obviously stood to make money out of publishing his edited versions and didn't want the competition of uh, these original versions coming out. If I remember correctly, Wagner did manage to publish some of them, but his goal had been to do the entire line and was badly stymied by De Camp.
0: Many Robert E. Howard stories, such as his Boxing Tales and El Borac, only made it into book form in the 1990s.
2: Following the death of De Camp in 2000, publishers started releasing the original versions of Howard's fiction. Del Rey, as we've mentioned previously, have published most of the definitive editions. Additionally, Howard's work has been out of copyright since 2011, making it easier than ever to get hold of. Although I think you've still probably got issues regarding the films and so on because that's uh, derivative work. But at least in terms of the original fiction, hey, no more copyright.
1: Oh, really? Hmm. I picked up a collection of pretty much all his prose. I don't think it's got much of his poetry in there. It's got some on the Kindle for 50 pence is quite nicely edited and annotated and so on. It's really quite a good edition. And it's the equivalent of, I think, something like 8,000 pages long. Geez. It's pretty damn comprehensive. I mean, it covers not only his fantasy and horror stuff, but all his boxing and other adventure tales, his historical tales and so on. I've only scratched the surface of that. As we've mentioned, I mean, he was fantastically prolific in his 12 years of writing. I mean, I consider myself to be something of a howard fan i've certainly read several books of his stuff most of his fantasy stories a lot of his horror stories and i feel like yeah i have barely got into the bulk of his work
0: well i think we kind of embraced the dark horror and the nihilism and all that and nothing says this better than a quote from howard about his worldview i believe that all human desires aims and pretensions are ultimately futile and empty, leading from nothing to nothing. I do not exclude the aims of art. I repeat that they are as basically and ultimately futile as are the aims of the rest of humanity.
2: I agree with the man wholeheartedly.
0: (laughs) And in that, I think he shares a lot of the same sort of feelings with Lovecraft, I think, in that that they both sort of felt that life was ultimately—I don't know if meaningless is the right phrase—but futile. That we give humanity great importance, but we give it that importance mistakenly. And I was reading a book recently by De Bono, and he's saying Edward De Bono, and he's saying uh, this is a, another great quote: "Life is just a holiday from non-existence." <laughs> You you don't exist, and then you have your life, and then you don't exist again. And yeah. it's just like, a, you know, you're just on vacation for a bit, so just enjoy it. Yeah,
1: nice <laughs> place to visit, but wouldn't want to stay there. Well, you don't have any choice. You don't get to stay. That's dangerously close to what's referred to as cheerful nihilism. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd say one difference between Lovecraft's nihilism and the nihilism expressed by Robert E. Howard is... I think there's a misanthropy at the heart of Lovecraft's nihilism. It's very intellectualised, but fundamentally, I think a lot of it comes out of, I don't want to say hate, but certainly disgust with life and the world around him and this general sense of everything not being as pure and as aesthetically pleasing as Lovecraft would have liked. With Howard... I think a lot of it, and this is one person's opinion based on reading about him and reading some of his work, but with Howard, I see it far more as being rooted in just good old-fashioned depression. Mm. He might have intellectualized it, but I think that chronic depression makes it very difficult for you to see meaning in the world. And I, uh, I don't think it's too fanciful to say that Howard had chronic depression. I mean, it ties in with what all his friends said about him. And I mean, obviously, he did commit suicide. I see this certainly reflected in his work. And that nihilism you just spoke about there, yeah, I mean, certainly what I'm going through about some sort of depression, that's exactly how I feel about, well, everything. I think
0: both Lovecraft and Howard, you know, when I think about them, I sort of think, what would it be like to spend the evening in their company? And I think they'd both be good fun because I think this Mm. perception of Lovecraft as a very downbeat, dour character is not what's portrayed by people when they met him you know he was quite an mm. ebullient character and quite personable and uh, seemed to be like the the center of attention when when he sometimes sort of met up with a, a group of writers or whatever um, so I think he would be good fun to spend the time with but I think with Lovecraft you'd sit around you'd drink some tea you'd maybe eat some ice cream and you'd you'd chat and he'd tell some entertaining tales and uh, it'd be kind of fun with Howard I, I kind of feel like after a while you'd go outside you'd shoot some cans off the fence with a gun and you'd uh you'd come in and you'd arm wrestle and uh you'd have a few beers and
1: head down to the ice house for a boxing match
2: yeah <laughs> i've only got one problem with that image of lovecraft you described and that's i can't picture him eating ice cream i always picture him eating beans and crackers
0: oh <laughs> no no yeah quite a lot of ice cream He very much liked ice cream
1: oh okay hmm there's a picture of him from his days in New York when he was living with Sonny Green. Well, married to Sonny Green. She, I think, for the first time in his life, made sure that he was properly fed. And he ballooned up. I mean, he looks pretty damn chubby in that picture. Hmm. And I think a lot of that was, yeah, ice cream. It's
2: one of the few times I can think of that, uh, again, in that similar kind of period, that you see him actually smile in a photo. Mm. Those face muscles did work after all.
1: yeah. <laughs> But going back to the remit of this podcast as being a Call of Cthulhu podcast, I'd say that if you're looking for inspiration in Robert E. Howard for your Call of Cthulhu games, there's plenty to be found. It's not always going to necessarily be in the places that you think, however. I don't think that on the whole his mythos fiction is going to give you a lot to play with in your Call of Cthulhu games. I mean, they may give you a few images and locations and NPCs, but on the whole, I don't think they're as playable or as inspirational as a lot of the other mythos fiction we've talked about. But on the other hand, particularly for pulp games, I think a lot of the more adventurous stuff that he's got in there, even the more comical stuff, is going to be... Things that you can draw upon for your games, and there's plenty of great character stuff that you can use, plenty of interesting locations. I think his work is ripe for Call of Cthulhu, just not perversely his Cthulhu stuff.
2: I think there's, there's definitely little kernels of inspiration you can pull from it, like particularly the closing passages of the Black Stone, for example, where he's describing these massive constructions and citadels and so on that are now buried within the mountains that people see them as mountains now and hills, but they are actually something is buried underneath them. Kind of harking back to Lovecraft's idea of the subterranean worlds and so on. Though passages like that are quite evocative, and that they can certainly help to inspire certain things for your own mythos fiction, again mentioning the um, Dig Me No Grave story, that you've got an archetypal sorcerer there with a devious plan to come mm. back. That yeah, again, these little kernels of things, I think you could probably riff off them wholesale, but you can certainly find stuff that I think would inspire you. But it's a very fairly limited range of what's there, because just because those stories are so sharp and short that they don't have the breadth of what you'd find potentially with things like Lovecraft's mythos
1: work. How about you, Paul? Is there anything you've come across in your Howard readings that you thought might inspire you for *Call of Cthulhu?
0: Not particularly. No, I'm more inspired by this kind of sword and sorcery stuff in, in terms of sword and sorcery gaming, really.
2: Well, good job. We're going to be looking at a sword and sorcery story of his next. Well, indeed. Thank you, you're listening to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
1: Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this episode and, we hope, other episodes. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us on Patreon at any stage. And we have a few new people to thank by name. Starting off
2: with a thanks to McAfee. And also, thanks out to the singular, Alex Writes Loud.
1: And thank you very much to the wonderfully named, A Grotesque Joke. And finally... Thanks
0: to Hermes Trimagistus.
1: And before we go, we'd just like to say that if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias and you think you know other people out there who would enjoy the podcast but perhaps haven't been exposed to us yet then if you can find it in your heart to let them know by posting on social media, telling them in person, slipping unsigned notes under their doors or wrapped around bricks thrown through their windows. Actually, no, don't do that last one then. That'd be counterproductive. But if you can share the good word of Jackson with them, we would be eternally grateful. And when we say eternally,
2: we mean it. Although there's no way I'm going to be exposing myself or anyone
1: good is that because of the
2: court order maybe
0: okay well that wraps up our discussion of uh, Robert E Howard join us next time for a, a discussion about one of his stories perhaps one of his best we will discuss but uh, the Tower of the Elephant we're going to be storming that one so until then it's a goodbye from me cheerio
2: from me and farewell from me
1: hello for Ms. Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.